when the Pevensey children first hear about Aslan, they are unsure what to think. Should they be afraid? Susan asked, is he, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Mrs. Beaver replies, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just silly. Lucy says, then is he safe? Mr. Beaver says, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. You see, Aslan is not a tame lion, and he is not safe. And throughout the Chronicles of Narnia, we encounter a being who is wild, and he is on the loose, and he cannot be tied down. He cannot be controlled. He cannot be manipulated, nor can he be bullied. He commands reverence and obedience. And when the children encounter Aslan for the first time, they are overwhelmed. And they... they, I thought this was interesting. They say this, people who have not been to Narnia sometimes think that a thing cannot be good and terrible at the same time. Note that. People think that he, a thing cannot be good and terrible at the same time. If the children never thought so, they were cured now, for when they tried to look at Aslan's face, they just caught a glimpse of his golden mane and the great and royal, solemn, overwhelming eyes, and they found that they could not look at him, and they went all trembly. Furthermore, Aslan is dangerous. The white witch cannot look at her, look in his eyes. She threatens death to those who mention his name. And none of the evil creatures get at Aslan until he voluntarily gives himself up. Mr. Beaver's answer to Lucy's question, is he safe, reveals that there is more to Aslan than this. Safe. Who said anything about being safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he is good. He is the king, I tell you. So as we come to Psalm chapter 5, we are going to encounter a God who is not safe. But I tell you, he is good. We come to a God who is both terrible and... uh, Good all at the same time. How can that be? So I just begin with a warning that the God that we will see in Psalm chapter 5 is anything but safe. We will be challenged with the God who is presented in Psalm chapter 5. So let me just give you a few facts, Psalm facts, if you will. I'll be very brief with this. But Psalm chapter 5 is a plea for deliverance. It is a plea by David for deliverance, and it is grounded in the nature of God. And as I prayed and thought about the direction that I would go and what is the main theme of this psalm, that took there's quite a bit of difficulty here, but ultimately it is prayer grounded in the nature of God. It is what we would call a lament. There are many types of psalms. You've probably heard of the various types of psalms. You've, of course, heard of psalms of praise um, and thanksgiving. There are royal psalms where, um, and there are psalms of enthronement where a king is enthroned uh, upon uh, being inaugurated into his kingship. And there are also laments, and this is a lament, and even maybe a bit more specifically, it is... A, There is a component in this psalm that we call an imprecatory 
psalm. And that's just a fancy way of saying that it invokes a curse. Yep, that's right. There is actually a prayer to invoke a curse upon the enemies of the prayer. So that's just a little bit of background on Psalm chapter 5. Let me um, try to give you the direction that I hope to be going today um, in this psalm. And, and as I said, I, I kind of wrestled with what is the theme? What is the author's main intent? What's he getting at? And I think perhaps it's, it's a primer on how to pray when you are being slandered. But I think that's not the main theme. I, I think that's the, the action that, that David is responding to. But ultimately, the theme here is about God Almighty. In fact, David's prayer is grounded in the person and nature of God. In fact, by knowing God, David is able to pray with confidence. And I hope that by the time we get to the end of this message, that you will have a clearer understanding of the nature and person of who God is. And having that, having that, you will be much more confident to enter in to his presence with thanksgiving and his courts with praise, to come, be able to come before him boldly and with confidence. What we are going to see today, or at least where I'm going to, the, the few things that I'm going to point out is that we are going to see God as king. God is king. We are going to see God as holy. We will see God as merciful. We will see God as just, and we will see that God is kind. You see, by knowing God, we can then pray with the same confidence that David prays. And so we begin with Psalm chapter 5, to the choir master, for the flutes, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you I pray, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice, in the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. And so we don't know the exact circumstances that prompted this prayer from David, but obviously there is something troubling him. And as we go through this, one of the things we will see is that David is being slandered and lies are being said about him. And I suppose it's not that big of a deal if people slander us and lie about us. What is really the problem is that others believe them. And so David is being slandered. Perhaps this is the time of Absalom. We don't know. But despair, despair drives David's plea to be heard. Give ear to my word, O Lord, consider my groanings. Let me pause here for just a moment and talk about this idea of groaning. It's a little off topic, but I think it's important and I pray that it'll be encouraging for the church. It's encouraging to me and I pray that it'll be encouraging to you because this idea of groaning has has a New Testament parallel. <clears throat> the New Testament parallel is found in Romans chapter 8 where Paul is writing about the Holy Spirit's assistance to the believer in prayer. And it, it goes like something like this, that even when you don't know what to pray, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. 
with groanings too deep for words. This is the parallel that I, that, that is found in the New Testament. What is, what is the crisis? The crisis is I'm in need and I don't even know what to pray or how to pray. This is David's place. I am groaning. It's the same idea. I'm gro- I don't know what to say. I don't know what to pray. I don't know if I can even mutter, help me, Lord. The pain of the cancer is too great and all I can do is moan on my bed. That's it. The grief of the lost loved one is so deep and so severe that I know nothing but agony. The weight of my sin is too great to bear. I don't know what to do. All I can do is cry out to God with mutterings. I want you to know that in that situation, in that circumstance, you have not been abandoned, but the Holy Spirit intercedes on your behalf before the throne of God, before God Almighty in accordance to the will of God. The Spirit of God does for you what you cannot do for yourself. This is where David's at. Hear my groanings, O Lord. Plead my cause. I don't even have words. When you are in that place, I want you to know that God has not abandoned you. It is then that God picks up and takes over where you are weak. He is strong. One of the great things is then the Spirit of God prays in accordance with the will of God. Because He knows the mind of God. Folks, we have a great advocate. Great advocate. And so David, his despair is, is driving his plea. Hear my groanings, O God. And here he says, give ear to my, I'm sorry, give attention to the sound of my cry. My king and my God. This is the first place where we see David refer to God as king in the Psalms. And so I want to focus on that. Now we've seen God alluded to as king in Psalm chapter 2. But this is where David, actually the first place where David calls God my king. <clears throat> Find that interesting because David is a king. And David recognizes adamantly and clearly that his authority is not ultimate. I am a king. You, God, are my king. In other words, I am subordinate to the king of kings. While I have the highest rank in the land, I am the most powerful position, um, have the most powerful position in the empire. You, God, are my king. I am subordinate to you. Folks, the the reality is this. Like all earth rulers, their authority is a derived authority. It is a subordinate authority. They do not rule by their own decree and by their own force of power or might or intelligence or wisdom. Their authority is a derived authority. David recognizes this, and we need to recognize that God is king. (coughs) Nebuchadnezzar recognized this, though it took him a while. God struck him mad. And then he realized, yeah, you know what? God is king of kings and lord of lords, not me. I am the ruler of the most powerful empire on the face of the earth, and I eat grass. 
because God said I was going to eat grass. He is king. Pilate, Jesus said, don't you know whatever authority you have comes from God himself? Your authority is a derived authority. And so David prays to a king who is unswayed by power, who is unswayed by wealth, who cannot be bribed, who cannot be uh, cajoled or manipulated. He is the king of the universe. David is now praying to the highest authority. The king, by the way, this is so rare to us because I don't, I have to, I don't understand a monarchy. I've never lived in a monarchy. I don't know what that is. I've always lived in a so-called democratic or constitutional republic. We need to understand something uh, about God as king. We do not confer our system of government upon God. See, a king is not a democratic ruler. He is a sovereign, absolute ruler of all things. We do not go to God and negotiate, well, I hear what you say, and that's a really good plan, and I'm going to offer a, a, a different plan, and perhaps we can come together on a compromise and come up with a bill that you and I will both be happy with. God will have none of it. God is king. So David now prays to the highest authority that there is. He prays in the morning, and I will just a brief mention that a plea to God in the morning suggests that that God is David's plan A. See, when you know that God is king, he becomes your plan A. Despite all the things the scriptures say about the wisdom of counselors, and, and we agree that it is wise to have good counselors and friends and, and brothers and sisters in the Lord, we applaud that, we endorse that, but God needs to be our plan A. Why? Because he's king. He is sovereign over all, he is ruler over all, and he tolerates no insurgencies. And so... Give ear to my words. Give attention to the sound of my cry. My king and my God. And so we see the very first thing that David um, leads us to understand about his prayer is that God is king. Sometimes we say, well, you know, prayer changes things. And I don't want to be too nitpicky or what have you, but no, God changes things. The means that God uses is prayer. So I understand. So... Like I said, I don't want to get too too detailing. But God changes things because God is king. God is Lord of all. He rules over all things. So the first thing we, we get out of this is the fact that God is king. So I would encourage you to come to God as king. The next thing we learn is that God is holy. And let me just warn you, we are now about to approach a God who is not safe. What we are about to say is not safe. The picture here in verses 4 through 6 is of those who are rebels against the king, 
who despise His name, who shake their fists at Him, who willfully and woefully violate and disregard the words of the King. And David is saying, you cannot come into the presence of, you cannot come into His house. Speaking probably of the temple, you cannot come into where He is. You see, God is holy. And the picture here is that the wicked cannot come into God's place. So we need to discover that God is holy. And when we talk about the holiness of God, we look at this in two spheres or two aspects. And the idea of God being holy, first of all, has this idea of God being set apart. That is, He is other. He is not like the gods of the age. He is not like the rulers of the age. He is not like anything. He is not an ideal version of you. He is not you just better. No, he's other. He is set apart. An aspect of his being set apart is his, is, is a moral component. And his moral purity is one of the elements that sets him apart. He is not, <coughs> excuse me, he is not like the pagan gods who are very human. I don't know if you've read much mythology, whether ancient Near East, Middle Eastern um, mythology, or it doesn't matter. It can be Roman or Greek mythology. But one of the things you find is that the gods are very human. They, they are capricious. They are jealous. They are um, vengeful. They are lustful. They are greedy. They are, they're really just like us. Not even the, the good version of us. They take all of our bad components and there they are. But God is holy. He is not like the pagan gods who are very human, who are very flawed. God does not delight in wickedness. Evil cannot dwell with God. He does not delight in wickedness. See, God and evil are polar opposites. He does not delight in wickedness. He does not laugh at evil. He does not find sin attractive or entertaining in any way. God does not laugh at the jokes that we laugh at or find humor in the podcasts and the TV shows that we find humorous. Not that he is a cosmic killjoy, but he does not delight in wickedness. And as a result, he does not tempt anybody with wickedness. James 1.13 and 14. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. And so evil may not enter the, pro- the presence of God. In fact, This is one of the things that the scriptures say about God and the presence of evil. In Exodus, in a a number of places in Exodus and then other places throughout scripture, we learn this, that God is a consuming fire. What does that mean? Well, what it means is that God consumes all of the evil that is in his path. Look at this. Here's the passage, Deuteronomy 9.3. 
Know therefore today that he who goes before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you. Evil does not come into the presence of God. In fact, God consumes, devours the wicked. He is a consuming fire. He does not share his glory with others. He destroys all those who will oppose him. Second Thessalonians. I don't think I have this up there. So Second Thessalonians one eight. In flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here's the thing, folks. What I've just said to you is a very uncomfortable truth. Like I said, he's not safe. And if you are living in abject rebellion to a holy God, you are not in a safe place because God is not safe. And I don't know, you can you can counter this position if you choose to, but perhaps we have been quick. Perhaps we have erred in being quick to assure unbeliever that God loves them and has a wonderful plan for their lives. The reality is God is coming after them. That's the reality. God is coming after them. The Bible says that we are at enmity with God. That means we are God's enemies. The unregenerate are God's enemies, and he is a consuming fire. That is not safe. In our unregenerate condition, God is coming for us. And I would say this, if his wrath against sin is delayed, that is God's common grace. And if you are living in rebellion against God, and you are saying, well, nothing's happened so far. It is God's kindness that leads to repentance. And I would implore you today to fall upon your knees and call upon the God who is not safe, for he is a consuming fire. And ultimately, we are just storing up judge, wrath for the day of judgment. Our God is a consuming fire. God's anger towards the unrepentant sinner is never fashionable, but I would maintain this, that it is the bedrock of the gospel. What did God save you from? What does God save from? Sin. What does that mean? You've heard it said often here. You've heard it said often at Reconcile. What God saves you from is himself. It is the, this is the bedrock of the gospel. The good news, however, is that the wrath of God against sin is not the last word. Because we also learn that God is merciful. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Praise God, this psalm does not end at verse 6. You abhor bloodthirsty men. You hate evildoers, full stop. That would be a bummer. David then goes on, and we see and learn that God is not only holy, but God is merciful. The good news is that God saves sinners. 
I want to note this contrast, but verse seven, but I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. This is an amazing statement. Consider the contrast. The previous verse is the wicked may not dwell with you. The wicked cannot stand before you. God abhors bloodthirsty men. God abhors liars. They will have no part in this present. That's the previous verse. The present verse, I will enter your house and I will bow down before you. This is a mind-boggling statement. Because here's the dilemma, at least as I'm reading it. Is David claiming to be one unstained by the pollutants of wickedness? Is David claiming to be a man without fault that he can somehow boldly stand in the presence of this holy God? Is that what he's saying? Is David claiming to be a man of pure lips? A man whose hands have not shed innocent blood? Is David claiming to be a man without deceit? David's none of those things. None of them. On what basis then, if David is no different from the wicked of verses 4 through 6, then on what basis is David saying, I will enter your house? But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love. Oh, man, let's never, ever, ever neglect that truth. I, through your steadfast love, I will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple. Yes, I will be in your presence. How? Because of your steadfast love. David is not claiming some moral superiority. He claims the mercies of God. This is this this idea of steadfast love. It's interpreted in a different a number of different ways. It might be interpreted in your Bible as covenant love, and there's a variety of ways. It is one of those really challenging Hebrew words that takes a paragraph to try to um, uh, define, and then that falls short. It is really one of those aspects of God's word that we can probably never exhaust. So I would say it is untranslatable. But if we were to translate it, I think if we were to use New Testament terminology to help us understand this, we would say grace. It is God's covenant loyalty. You see, David is aware of his condition. I am a bloodthirsty man. I am a man of deceitful lips. How in the world can I enter into the presence of this holy God? By grace. By the unmerited, steadfast, covenant love of God Almighty. That's it. I, I come empty-handed. I got nothing. But I enter into God's presence by His permission and by His grace. Augustus Top Lady, I think, put this well. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. This is what David doesn't have the cross, but he does have the covenant love of God Almighty. Unfortunately, the world rejects this love. 
We reject this love in at least two different ways. The first way, we just classic unbelief. I'm going to live the way I want to live. I'll just do whatever I want to do. There is no God above, and if there is, I'll face him, which is foolish. The beavers and the Narnia said, at least understood, man, who can stand before God and not tremble? Second way that we reject God's love, probably much more well-known, is an attempt to merit God's love by self-improvement. I will be a good person. I will turn and I will right the wrongs. I will apologize to those who I've sinned against in the past. I will be a good person. I will be a nicer person. I will be a kinder person. I won't steal. I won't cheat, at least not very much, to the best of my ability. I will attempt to merit God's love by my own self-improvement. But even upright and moral hearts are far from God. David says, I will bow down before your holy temple in the fear of you. This is the proper response to the love of Christ. To embrace the covenant love of God demands that we will humble ourselves before God Almighty. Have mercy on me, a sinner. That person will in no wise be cast out, ever ever. This offer of covenant love is made through the person of Jesus Christ. Just remind you in Titus chapter 3 verses 4 through 6. Paul writes this, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. He says this saying is trustworthy. So I would now implore you that if you have come to Christ with anything thinking that you will merit his goodness. It's time to empty, empty your hands and come and cling to Christ and Christ alone. The offer is to embrace the covenant love of God and it demands that we bend the knee, bow ourselves before God and call upon his name and you will be saved. The next, so we've seen that God is king, that God is holy, and that God is merciful, but God is just. For there is no truth in their mouth, their inmost self is destruction, their throat is an open grave, they flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God, let them fall by their own counsels because of the abundance of their transgressions. Cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. I'm not going to spend a huge amount of time here, but the bottom line here is truth is being perverted. There is no truth in their mouth. Their their inmost self is destruction. Jesus said, out of the heart the mouth speaks. Out of the heart comes the defilements. It's not the words because it's the heart. And this is what David is saying here. Their inmost self is destruction and they speak lies. That's all they can do because that's who they are. I believe that David's enemies are telling lies and people are believing the lies. And the source of the lies is their hearts. They speak. When 
I think kind of the picture here is when they speak, it is like the opening of a casket. Just nothing but stench and death. And then David pleads that God would render a guilty verdict against them. That's pretty foreign to us. It's not a personal vendetta, but because they have rebelled against God, God be just. One of the big questions we get here is that can we pray similar prayers? This is what we would call an imprecatory prayer, which is to bring down a curse upon somebody. And certainly there are passages of text that would would say that pray for those who persecute you. It's not all that the Bible says about prayer, though. And as we study the Bible, what does the entire Bible say about a thing? Paul says, if anybody preaches a, go- a different gospel, let them be cursed. Let them be cursed. The saints in heaven in the book of Revelation pray, Lord, judge those who killed us. Bring their deeds to justice. I'd be very cautious about our imprecatory prayers. But there does seem to be a place for them. I would probably look to yourself first. Maybe pray an imprecatory prayer. God, judge me. Be just towards me. But David is praying for justice. And when we see wickedness and oppression and vileness, we see people being trafficked. Be just, O oh God, against those who are defiling people made in your image. But we learn that God is just, and then finally we learn that God is kind. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. I love the permanence of that, don't you? Let them ever sing for joy. Let everybody who takes refuge in you rejoice. Spread your protection over them and that those who love your name may exalt in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Everyone who takes refuge in God, there is this permanent state, this ever singing for joy. I'll close with this <clears throat> first question I'd like to ask you is to whom do you pray? Do you pray to some nebulous, undefined quasi-deity, some in, the impersonal universe? Or do you pray to the living God who is king and holy and merciful and just and kind, who hears your groanings? God is king. That is, God rules the universe. There is no area where God is not king. You can not recognize him as as king, but that doesn't change anything. He's still king. God is holy. What this means is that we do not approach God on our own terms. We come on his. And the terms that he has laid out is, come to me through Jesus Christ, the crucified, risen Lord. God is merciful. The humble who plead his mercies will never be turned away. God is just. 
he will indeed set things right. And God is kind, you will find shelter in his presence. Ultimately, God is not safe, but he is good. If you are a follower of Christ today, let me tell you the unsafe things that he calls you to. If you want to be my disciple, you will lay down your life, you will take up your cross, and you will follow after me. That is unsafe, and he is good. See, when he said, follow me, you, you do know where he was going, don't you? He was going to Jerusalem to be crucified. Lay down your life, take up your cross, come and follow me. Let's go to Jerusalem. I think Thomas got it when they were going to go visit Lazarus after Lazarus died. What does, what does Thomas say? Let's go die with him. Thomas got it. He knew that Jesus is not safe, but that he is good. And so today I would submit to you to fall upon the name, fall upon the one who is anything but safe, but he is utterly good. He is king. He is holy. He is merciful. He is just and he is kind. Let's pick up our cross and follow after him. Father, we come before you this day. We thank you and we praise you and we ask that you would guide us this day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.